hello. Welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Carl Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by my colleague, William Sternheimer, partner at the firm and previously Deputy Secretary General of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, known as CAS. We are very happy that we also have with us Dr. Antoine Duval. Antoine is a senior researcher at the ASSA Institute and is the founder and editor of both the ASSA International Sports Law blog and the Yearbook of International Sports Arbitration. He writes frequently about the CAS and CAS-related issues. We are also joined by Dr. Marjolaine Viret. Marjolaine is an attorney at the Geneva Bar with a specialism in sports law. Her PhD thesis, Evidence in Anti-Doping at the Intersection of Science and Law, was published in 2015. Marjolaine often appears before the CAS, both as counsel and as an expert. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series in which we will be exploring areas in which the CAS might improve its practices and discussing certain challenges which the CAS may face going forwards. So, let's move on to the discussion. And let's start with some relatively recent news. Just before Christmas, we learned that the Swiss Federal Supreme Court has ruled in Sun Yang's favour and thus set aside the CAS award in his case. That was due to the bias of the panel president. The reasoning of the Supreme Court has now been made available. That was this week. Do you think its decision is likely to be confined to the very particular facts of that case, or could it be of broader impact to the CAS? And if I could ask, first of all, of Antoine, what do you think, Antoine? My personal impression or view is that this decision will not be a structural game changer for the Court of Arbitration for Sports. It is related to the very specific situation of that case and the very specific behavior of the president of the arbitral panel in that case. I think what it might trigger is a review by a number of arbitrators of their Twitter channels or of their social media profiles, and as well a rush by a number of uh, practicing lawyers to take screenshots as soon as possible of those same profiles. And maybe to add something that is potentially, I think, more important and important in the context of our discussion, it should maybe trigger also a review of the process at the CAS of selecting the president of the appeal panels. Because having someone that tweeted this type of the tweets as one of the few president of the appeal panels for that particular type of cases is selected as such is something that at least puts into question the process followed at the CAS to select someone as fitting to be president of the panel. And what do you think, William? Just if I jump on something that Antoine just mentioned, I, I fully agree with him that probably this decision will have an impact on how the division president will have to select the president of the panel. Antoine was mentioning the duty of diligence of councils, basically to be looking for what some panel members uh, have tweeted. I agree with him that this will have also an impact on how CAS itself, the division president, will be selecting chairs 
in appeals proceedings. About the duty of diligence of counsel, the Swiss Federal Tribunal basically said that it was not for counsel to make an active research of social media of the panel members, with which I tend to agree. Although, like Antoine was saying, now probably in order to avoid a situation where in another matter the Swiss Federal Tribunal will say that counsel was lenient in not doing sufficient searches, it probably will lead to counsel acting before CAS to to investigate further and, and like Antoine was saying, mentioning to take lots of screenshots of any sayings from panel members to be able to challenge those arbitrators in the context of a specific case at a later stage. And Marjolaine, do you have anything to add about this recent Sun Yang decision? I agree. I think with both views that even though it's not directly one of those cases that is questioning like the structural or institutional independence of, of the caste, it might have uh, implications for the choice of the of the arbitrators. Otherwise, it's true that it's it's a ca- it was a case of appearance of partiality of the arbitrator that you could encounter in commercial arbitration cases. The specificity remains that in a commercial arbitration case, we wouldn't have such publicity. So the publicity that is given to sports law cases in general and this case in particular, where there was already a challenge against a party arbitrator pending, and it was the first public hearing after the, the ECHR, the Pechstein decision, and then the very political context of international sports and of these doping matters in general in between uh, countries as, uh, as political stakes. This, this probably makes it a sports-specific issue, but, but not directly an institutional issue with the CAS. From an arbitration uh, practitioner's perspective, it's of course interesting in what William said regarding the, the party's uh, duty of diligence, what they call the duty of curiosity in the decision. And then on looking at what statements can create legitimate doubts on the impartiality of the of the arbitrators when you are in the context of social media and it's true that there the statements were particularly let's say blatant or violent and clearly referred to the to the color of skin as the federal tribunal said and not just to the individuals that were commented on the on the videos on the on those social media statements and in that regard it's it's perhaps surprising that the respondent argued that the statements could be excused as clumsy. I mean, that's perhaps not a not a debate to get into on this on this podcast. But it's it's slightly surprising for an institutional respondent to take approach. And that, that was my feeling, and it seemed to be the tribunal's feeling as well. If I may, I, I think that was a quite surprising decision to see both Cass and Wada basically supporting the arbitrator and trying to minimize those statements. I think this is, this is quite disappointing. And what is disappointing as well, and I, I stressed it in my first intervention, is just the vetting process of CAS. I mean, yeah, I don't understand. The parties have a limited amount of time, and the lawyers of the parties have a limited amount of time to do that check, that background check. But the CAS is supposed to be vetting, especially those individuals, closely. So it, it seems surprising that the president of the panel went through that vetting without being flagged. And it seems even more surprising that he went through that vetting and was selected to deal with a case that involves a Chinese athlete 
without being flagged. So here there is a somewhere in the institutional process inside CAS something that went wrong. William, was there something you wanted to say there? Yeah, basically I agree with Antoine. The only problem I, I'm talking now from, from past experience, basically CAS is not checking the social media of every single arbitrator. And which might be a problem and, and which might be something that now CAS will have to consider for the future in view of this, of this decision. But CAS has never done so. And I think that's probably one of the explanations of the answer that CAS brought before the Swiss Federal Tribunal was because it learned of those social statements by the president of the panel after the award had been rendered. I am pretty sure that if CAS had, had read about those statements before, then obviously things would have been done. Having had the award being rendered, it was obviously very difficult not to, let's say, defend the award once everything had, had been finalized. There's defending the award, and I can see why it was proper for a statement to be obtained from Mr. Frattini and for that to be filed in the Swiss Supreme Court proceedings, which it was. But then to go beyond that and to fight his corner and say, well, actually, these words, they're not quite as bad as they first look. To me, that was surprising rather than just letting it speak for itself and letting the, the Supreme Court make its own mind up as to the words. I, I can only agree on, on that one. It, it probably has went one step too far and could have simply left it to the, to the judges to decide the, the, the appropriateness of the, of the words used by the president of the panel. Okay, let's move on to talk about consent to sports arbitration. And again, this is a relatively recent development. So towards the end of last year, the District Court of Frankfurt confirmed its jurisdiction due to the invalidity of the arbitration clause contained in the contracts between two beach volleyball players and the German Volleyball Federation. That finding of invalidity was made on the basis that the players had no realistic choice but to submit to that arbitration agreement. The Federation has since filed an appeal. Do you think that this case is likely to move the consent debate on following Petstein, or is it just a first instance oddity? And if I can come to you first of all, please, Marjolein. Yes, so First, I think it's it's important to put this back into context. So it was a case of volleyball players against their national federation and not an arbitration clause before CAS, but before a different tribunal, from what I understand from reading the, the court decision, with manifestly lower requirements than the CAS. So I, I understand that, for example, officials of the association were authorized on, on panels. So, so there is no direct involvement of the CAS in, in, in this case. Now, it's true that it's, if you read the decision, it's, it's quite short. It starts with some reasoning on, the, on whether the German law on general standard clauses is applicable or not, and the judge concludes that, that it is. And then, in the end, the judge uses the Pechstein decision, the ECHR decision, to sort of revise the ruling of the Bundesgerichtshof and to say, well, now what the Bundesgerichtshof said, that the, based on a balance of interest, you could accept the validity of the arbitration clause in, in front of CAS. This is now not really valid anymore in light of this new ECHR decision. But then this first instance, German judge goes farther than 
both the BGH and the ECHR went by saying, okay, we don't have valid consent because consent is not freely given. So uh, there is no valid arbitration clause and thus we have jurisdiction on the matter. So the, the reasoning is very straightforward and sort of intuitively appealing. They went very far in that they, they conclude directly from the lack of free consent to the lack, the lack of validity of the arbitration clause. And this is where it will be interesting to see what happens on appeal, because unlike what happened in the Pechstein matter, th- there was no contextual placement of the case into some form of area of law where there is a protection of the party that signs a clause when they have no reasonable choice in, in practice. So like the, the, the dominant position that was invoked in front of the, of the big EHA and that allowed them to make a form of balance of, of, of interest. The issue is often in this case that the parties do not actually object to the clause until they have a dispute. So we are not dealing with a case where consent was refused, but simply to assess whether consent that is not freely given invalidates the arbitration clause. And so I think if it goes on appeal, it will be interesting to see whether that very straightforward reasoning that the judge applies has has any chance of of succeeding in in, in front of higher courts. What do you think, Antoine, is that last question Marjolaine posed? I think uh, Marjolaine has has, uh, done a good work in, in summarizing the case. I'd like to come back a little bit to your question, which was, do you think this case is likely to move the consent debate on, or it's just a first instance oddity? And I think, in a way, it's both. It's going to move the debate. It's definitely going to be there for the years to come, probably going up, potentially, to the big heart again, and asking, again, the question of free consent to sports arbitration in general, let's say, even though here we are t- not talking about the court of arbitration for sport. And I think my impression is that it will not stand as it is, that it will potentially be seen as a first instance oddity in the future. And that is, I think, the more interesting question. It's because I think now, since the decision of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, we all know what we already knew. <laughs> it is that sports arbitration at the CAS, but also in the context of national sports arbitration, like this case shows, is almost always forced arbitration. It cannot rely on consent to legitimize its existence. So that's what I've been writing quite a bit on in the recent past. It's about the need to think of post-consensual arbitration in this context and the need to find new foundations. And in fact, I think courts like the BGH or the Swiss Federal Tribunal have been putting forward those post-consensual foundations. They have been arguing that we need sports arbitration in any case because we need to provide a level playing field that is genuinely transnational, that cannot be dealt with in a fragmented fashion by a number of national courts. I think we are moving towards that. And my feeling is that this case will, again, put that question clearly to, to the big EHA. Can we accept forced arbitration in the context of sports? And this is obviously antithetic to the idea of arbitration in general, which is historically, philosophically grounded in autonomy, in consent. 
And this is uh, the conundrum that we lawyers and legal scholars have to have to deal with now. From my personal point of view, I've been arguing that we should accept forced arbitration in the sporting context, that we should accept the validity of that type of arbitration. But however, and this is connected as well with the decision of the Pechstein Mutu decision of the European Court of Human Rights, that it requires that we impose on sports arbitrations very different types of procedural requirements than to commercial arbitration or to arbitration in a, in a consensual context. That we analogize sports arbitration, that we treat it almost like we treat national courts, public judicial bodies. That has been my position, and I think this case will bring more and more the debate in that direction, but will not be the end of, of the discussion. So, Antoine, you mentioned procedural requirements. And what sort of procedural requirements are you thinking of? I'm guessing you may be thinking of public hearings as one, and that takes us back to Sun Yang quite neatly. But are there others you're thinking of as well? There are two aspects that I'm, that I'm focusing on in my research. Uh, one is, is a question of transparency, and that includes, in, in my mind, public hearings, but as well a systematic publication of, of awards. We're not there yet. And a much greater transparency of the management of the CAS. So one of the issues that I find really problematic is that we don't have minutes of ICAS meetings, we don't have agenda of ICAS meetings, we don't have a, a proper annual report of the CAS. The statistics of the CAS have stopped being published in 2016. So we have a lot of issues with the transparency of this institution. And this is just not acceptable in the context of forced arbitration, in the context in which one of the parties to the arbitration is not really freely consenting to it. So that's for the transparency leg. And then I see a number of issues related to independence, to structural independence. So not the type of questions raised in the Sanyang context of the impartiality of the individual arbitrator, but the structural independence of the institution. And there, I think a lot needs to be done to, to improve that structural independence, both in terms of, again, the composition of the ICAS, in terms of the nomination of the arbitrators, in terms of the nomination of the presidents, in terms even of considering whether we should not change entirely the system of nomination, of determination of who judges. And here I'm, I'm on the record in other contexts saying that I'm in favor of a fixed roster of judges that would be relatively small, 9 to 15, but that would do that exclusively. That would be permanent judges. And I think that type of move would, in a way, publicize the CAS, but would also enable us to exercise a much better control over who is an arbitrator and, and the quality of those arbitrators and limit the risk of conflict of interest. And William, is there anything you'd like to, to come back on there in terms of what Antoine was just saying? Two things I, I tend to agree with. Antoine. Well, first, to come back on what you said earlier about the oddity of this German decision, Unless Antoine and Marjolaine think about other countries, I guess that Germany and Belgium have both been 
pretty critical about the whole forced arbitration system and CAS in general, but at first instance, then obviously in appeals and, and before the Supreme Court's decisions have been rather comforting the system than challenging it. But yeah, Germany and, and Belgium are probably the two European countries where you have those most of those types of decisions which are against, I would say, the system, if I may say so. In terms of what Antoine was just mentioning, there has been a debate since day one I was at CAS. Basically, you have you have people who are pro-arbitration. You've got people who are pro more kind of like a national court structure with professional judges. It's very hard for me to be able to express an opinion after having spent 10 years within the institution itself. But I, I can see the force of Antoine's reasoning in saying, if you are to consider that arbitration is forced arbitration, which I think it is, also in view of my background in commercial arbitration before joining CAS, that then obviously the institution must provide more transparency and more guarantees that it's respecting the party's rights in the context of those proceedings. And this maybe comes back to a point that I was mentioning in our previous podcast about CAS, was the lack of communication from CAS in respect of how it is structured, who decides what, why are some people nominated in some cases and not others, etc. There's probably a lot of work that CAS needs to do in terms of communication to ensure this transparency and could potentially answer to some of the questions that people like Antoine or people from outside the system do not know and do not see and do not understand. I was going to say that I, I think I've really moved closer, or Antoine and I have moved closer to each other in our reasoning, so we won't have uh, any big uh, major argument, unfortunately, during this, this podcast. So even so, I... We may differ a little bit on how we reach the conclusion. I, I, I think that indeed it's time to move from this debate on consent, where everyone sort of agrees that now there is a problem with consent, and we move from this debate to the debate of the quality of what is being consented to, or not being consented to, but the, the quality of the system. And I think in if, if you look at the, the Swiss Federal Tribunal and also the, the Begehau reasoning, there was this idea that in the end there was a form of community of interests, both of the federations and of the athletes, special. to have a sort of special sports dispute resolution system in place. So as Antoine said, the, the, the issue should now really go away from this question of consent and go on what do we put in place in terms of system. And there I agree with the points that Antoine made, especially the the transparency and the and the publicity of the awards and the way they are publicized and the fact that if it becomes a genuine jurisprudence, it should be accessible equally to everyone, whether you are a friend with a council who had a case uh, before CAS and has access to the award or not. And, and especially the fact that there are still citations in CAS awards of cases that have not officially been published by CAS, or at least that there was some time ago, this is a real problem if you want to build up a, a jurisprudence. You cannot have references to non-published awards that people must seek access to through uh, other than official routes. Yeah, and I, I think to be fair, William would know better than me, but I think the CAS has been getting better in terms of publication. Certainly there's been 
lots and lots of awards have been uploaded relatively recently. But it remains the case that there's not a systematic approach, as far as I can see, to the publication of awards. And I can totally see, I agree that that would be by far the best way to proceed. The gas has been getting better. But it's still striking to me that each time that it dumps, because it's always dumping like 50 awards at once, you find awards that are back from 2006, 2005, 2008, and you, and you just can only wonder why were they put away for so long. And, and I think it's just no, no judicial, no respectable, legitimate judicial authority. Uh, we would not tolerate that, I would say, from any international or even European court. It is essential that any decision, and especially I'm here talking mainly about those decisions that are taken on appeal, obviously, that those decisions be systematically published almost at the same time that the press release come out. And it's also essential for the public discussion. Because when we have a discussion, when the decision of Semenya comes out and the entire planet is discussing about it, it's a crucial question about the way we conceptualize gender, the way we conceptualize sex, etc. And the decision comes out, the fuller word, only, what, one month later or one month and a half later? The whole public discussion around the decision, which, which is really, I think, an important matter, has not been able to be grounded on the arguments used in the world, has not been able to criticize those arguments. So I, I think it's essential, I mean, at least to me, in my eyes, that the cast turns towards a practice of publishing immediately the decisions when they release their press releases and publishing systematically those decisions. William, you were going to say something earlier. Yeah, ju just to come back on one of Marjolaine's points about cases which are referred to in, another case in published awards and actually those references are not published. Obviously, there is an issue there, but you, you do not have to use unofficial means to get access to those unpublished awards. As long as an award is referenced in another award, which is published by CAS, you can simply write to the CAS court office requesting a copy of the referenced award, and CAS, the CAS court office should be able to provide it to you unless it's been agreed that by the parties of this case that it remains confidential, in which case I would say the reference in the other case is a mistake. But basically, you can always ask the court office to get access to awards which are referred to, although they're not, that have not been published. To come back on Antoine's point about publishing awards as, as soon as a media release is being issued, I fully agree with his position. I think that if CAS is to make some publicity about some cases, the public is entitled to get the reasons immediately. Because the practice is always when an award is being notified to the parties to grant the parties a one-week deadline to basically agree on redactions, on whether the award should, be, should remain confidential, then CAS should also, let's say, refrain from communicating on the decision itself. Although everyone has been expecting this decision, it's either you, everyone refrains or everyone publishes. But you cannot, in my opinion, you cannot have CAS publishing a media release, but keeping the award on the side until it is published one week or one month later. 
Yeah, I, I would just like to add just a short word on the references in published award to non-published awards. And I agree with, with what you said, William, but then, then the point becomes, it's, it's not only a point of that when, when you read the published award that you don't have access to this reference. It's also the point that the, the CAS made its reasoning based on an award that was not available to the parties. That is an almost more uh, more severe question to me than the question of publicity to the to the random reader of the award, and you could al almost wonder whether a cast panel, if they plan to really rely on an, on such a reference, should not be obliged to provide the award to the parties and ask them to state their position on the on the contents of of the of the award prior to making the decision. So there is this other aspect that is arising. That's all we have time for in part one. Please join us for part two, in which, amongst other topics, we will be discussing arbitrator diversity. In the meantime, for information and articles on the CAS, please go to our website, morgansl.com. If you're interested in signing up to our mailing list, or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook for articles, updates and news pieces. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.